This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Magic Item Impact. Avram Davidson. 2010's SF Films. And The Great Looney Caper. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition, are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, looks pretty normal. Got your dice, got your Doritos, got your crown of command, got six or seven parts of some kind of rod. I got a deck. I'll bet there's many things in that deck. Well, anyway, let's shove all that to the side. Yeah, it is. It's the only kind we have when Peter Frampton smiles down upon us. And a classic gaming table alluded to by beloved Patreon backer Lauberfen, who asks, magic items, how much impact is right? Lauberfen continues, I enjoyed the latest D&D movie and noticed several plot-changing uses of powerful magic items. This worked well in what's essentially a one-shot, allowing the characters to divert the plot in interesting directions. How can this be delivered in an ongoing game, without sidelining the PCs and their abilities, or reducing the items to mere plus-one sword or MacGuffin status, Robin? So I guess I have to start with a confession, which is that in my very first role-playing days, when I GM'd my first gaming group in late grade school and early high school, the best, most fun, most memorable moments from that campaign were all about me being hornswoggled into giving much too good magic items out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And those magic items then becoming the whole central basis of play. There was a mythology that sprang up around the legendary previous owner of this much too powerful magic suit of armor and shield. And 
Then the player who got that stuff named himself after the legendary person who had this artifact. And then that guy came back to get the armor and it was great. So it dominated play and everybody loved it. So yeah. sometimes, especially I think in F20, making a giant mistake and giving them the players too much stuff or too much power is absolutely the right balance because that's where the fun is. Yeah. I mean, the thing where you say without sidelining the PCs and their abilities in an F20 game, their magic items are part of their abilities, right? You're defined to some extent by your magic items, you know, and this goes back, obviously Frodo is defined by having the ring or actually Bilbo is more defined by it in the Hobbit because Frodo barely uses it. But anyway, the point of being a fantasy or fairy tale character with a magic item is you're the guy who gets to use that magic item. And whether that's a fairy tale style, I have a comb that I throw it down and it becomes a forest or whether it's, you know, Cadmus with the dragon's teeth, that's your bit. That's your thing. You know, your Perseus with the mirror to reflect back on the Gorgon. That's, I mean, that's why the story is cool is because there's a cool magic item in it. And so therefore I don't see that the PCs are separate from their magic items in that way, because let's all be honest here around the gaming hut table. PCs barely have personalities in many cases <laughs> and asking them to be as charismatic and darling as Chris Pine without a magic item to back them up is a big ask. And I feel like maybe it's a false dichotomy in that case. And also on the other side of the, the spectrum, I think it's also perfectly fine to have a relatively boring magic item that is just a buff. Yeah. That, like you it's plus one sword. There you go. When you get a plus two, you put that one away and get the other one. And you have, you know, one moment, of fun that you've had a buff and then every moment you roll the die and don't get crushed, you enjoy it too. But of course the nature of F20 is that you're continually scaling up your enemies as you scale up your power and the, your additional power is sort of illusionary. Mm. But I, I think it is fun, however, to have uh, special guest star magic items, which is I think what Labrafan is getting at, which mm -hmm. is it's the ones in the D&D movie are to set up some of its clever sort of obstacle construction. There's some MacGuffinry as well, of course. And they are fun for the amount of time that they're on screen. And yes, if that group of characters was your group that you were running, you wouldn't want them to keep using those particular magic items until they were boring. So one thing you can do is have these fun magic items that appear and are the groovy solution to a particular problem and then go away. Well, there's all sorts of different reasons that they can go away. And you can create, I think, the understanding from the beginning that these are, to some extent, loners, right? That you're not, you're not going to name yourself after this particular special, you know, anti-demon bundle of holding because you've got to give it back to the Druids Guild or you know that, you know, you can use it four times and then it disintegrates or... You know, if, if you take it anywhere near fire, if you're within, you know, 500 feet of a fire, it will, you know, go up in flames. And there's only so long they're going to be able to keep that. And so I, I think if you just give them a cool magic item and then they think they have it forever and then you take it away, that's a recipe for heartbreaking grumbling. But letting them know, you know, that this is a limited resource and not something that will become part of their characters, I think, is the main way to solve this problem. Yeah, I think that another thing is a, yeah, this is a really powerful game changer of a magic item, and therefore it requires very important game 
level activity to recharge. If you've got, you know, your demon carrying bag of holding or whatever, sure. Yeah, it works. You toss it over a demon. Everyone's having a good time, but you need to put a beating heart of a dragon into it to kill the demon inside before you can use it again or else, you know, it's not a two demon bag. It's a one demon bag. And so that's the... You know, the nature of the of the item is it needs to be recharged. The sun sphere has to be, you know, carried through a volcano or whatever. You have to do something to reawaken this game changer power. And uh, by an odd coincidence, the thing you have to do is the game. Robin, what a what a thought that would be. Right. And another way to do that is something that has a cost or a drawback associated with it. Of course, having to go and do something that is also a cost, but you know, here we kind uh, you know, Stormbringer, of course, mm-hmm. another classic character defining magic item. Well, Stormbringer needs to eat. You got to feed Stormbringer. Mm-hmm. And also, if you unsheath Stormbringer in the wrong situation, he will eat the wrong people. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sort of a risk calculation as opposed to a recharge time that can get people to use their not quite defining, but also cool magic items that they want to uh, hold on to as well. So that's another way to do that. Another thing, I guess, is also the question of Stormbringer is great if there's one Elric, Mm -hmm. but if everybody has a super defining awesome magic item, that gets to be a little much because it's, it's not that they're too powerful, but rather that just, oh, everybody's got the same shtick now. So you might also want to think about which character you give the super cool magic item to, whether it's a character defining one or it's a loner that you look for, you know, a hole in the party. Uh, first of all, a player who wants spotlight time. And secondly, somebody who needs that spotlight time and can do something cool with it. So, you know, if the wizard's got fireball already, she's taken care of. She's good. She's got fireball. But, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the druid needs the demon eating bag. Although we have a whole genre in which all the characters have some amazing magic item or whatever, and that genre is super. So if all of the players have Stormbringer, yeah, that is dull. But if one player has Stormbringer and one player has the One Ring and one player has the Helm of Gyges and one player has those winged sandals of Perseus, well, now, now that's a super party and you can feed a little supers feel into your F20 and you can also have much more creative and dangerous fights while still understanding that the characters can probably get through them with these wonderful magic items you were so nice as to give them. And now they're, you know, mostly fighting ogre magi instead of bugbears, but that's all right. They've got a cool magic item. Right. And you can also use them all as, as plot hearts too. So you look at your list of players and see who's showing up tonight. And, oh, it's uh, Simone. She's the one with the, uh, the demon bag. So obviously we're going to make her the focus. And what do other demons who are not in the bag think of the demon bag, Ken? I bet they disapprove. And they're going to Yeah, they're probably, they're probably a it. Yeah. And so without taking that magic item away from you, suddenly it's now also a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, in F20, having to fight things isn't actually a problem. It's the, <laughs> as previously alluded to, the right. entire point. But that, again, makes you feel, at least on the story level, that it's you're not getting away with something that the, you know, that it, this is supposed to be central. It's not an accident that you got it. And uh, now there's other cool things happening. And also, as previously alluded to, you already have a demon in the bag. So mm-hmm. if they send one demon after you, you're in trouble. And what if you get the other demon out of the bag? Well, guess what? They send two demons. Mm-hmm. So you can sit down and, you know, to widen the example a bit, look for ways in which you can come up with novel obstacles 
that the players haven't encountered before, so they're not just doing the same thing every time, which nonetheless are solved by having these particular cool magic items that they obviously like. So it can be sort of on you as well to, you know, have a new problem for which the demon bag is a solution. Yeah, and I think we all remember, you know, the first excitement of pouring the uh, never-empty bottle, just dropping it into the bottom of the crevasse to fill up the crevasse to make a river we can swim across. That sort of repurposing of great magic items is another one of the fun things about having them. Again, in the super, like the super genre, you know, you have your, you know, your magic lasso, and there's a bunch of things you can turn out you can do with your magic lasso. It's not just, you know, compel truth, compel truth, compel truth. There's a bunch of stuff that a magic lasso can do. Similarly, figuring out corner cases and edge cases for magic items allows you to change up play in a way without necessarily nerfing the people's magic items by saying, oh, no, it's another devil. You can't put him in your demon bag. Too bad. So you're still playing into the characters being special and amazing F20 heroes without either making every combat the same. Oh, Stormbringer, what will you do? Drink souls? Well, there we are. And uh, you're, you're trying to sort of come up with new stuff and fun corner cases. And I guess that goes all the way back to when you drop a magic item like that into the game. You know, uh, Sherwood Schwartz famously said, never... S- try to sell a TV show you can't write 13 episodes for, I would say maybe don't put a big old magic item, an art of major artifact or whatever into the game, unless you can come up with maybe not 13, but let's say half a dozen really cool ways it can show up in story or really cool edge cases that you can play against it with. Right. And possibly that the number is three, not 13, because yeah, you maybe right. need three spotlight episodes per character over the course of a right. yeah. campaign. Yeah. You'll, you'll know how many episodes you'll need or item moments you'll need in, in your own game, but try and think ahead past the, you know, well, it's the battle axe of smiting and now what? Another thing that you could do to sort of hang a hat on the power of these defining magic items is just create a premise where it's a given that at some point you're going to take that magic item and use it. And so the question is not, will you succeed in using the magic item, but what other challenges do you face around it? So, for example, the uh, sheriffs of the forest can come to you and say, we know you have the demon bag. We've got a a terrible uh, demon up on the ridge. There's uh, all sorts of other problems there, too, but we would like you to go. And we can see right there, your demon bag is empty. We'd like you to put that demon in your bag. And so the suspense is not, are you going to succeed in putting the demon in the bag? Unless... Perhaps there's some sort of twist and turns out not to be a demon. But even if you just go there, you know, well, there's going to be a whole lot of other stuff to do. Mm -hmm. So you get to note that your magic item is cool. The magic item is central. But the question of the, that the whole adventure turns on is not, will I succeed yet again with this thing that I automatically succeed with given the rules? But what other trouble am I going to have around it? Or if the demon has heard that I'm coming, but he still wants to stay on the ridge. What is the demon doing to counteract the approach of their dreaded foe, a lady with a bag? And that's going to create, you know, a a moment for you to think like the antagonist, which is always a great habit to get into as a GM anyway, because it makes the combat tactically more interesting than just, I guess I'll stand in a room and wait, which is the standard response of many F20 monsters. So I think we've uh, given uh, lots of ideas for a whole campaign around exciting plot forwarding magic items and uh, we can therefore use our magic carpet to fly over this commercial to whatever hut waits on the other side 
After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling fog goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project and deeper things stir further below in Axistoria and finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in boundary waters and my LA hardboiled detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance leading to the house up in the hills takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in high voltage kill and finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store or at the Pelgrane Press web store. The feel of fine Corinthian leather bounding under our hands, the, the smell of paper, and uh, also the vastness of the bookshelves all arrayed around us tell us once more in the book hut. And uh, this time around, Ken, you've been uh, wanting to get to this for a while, and we've kept having other segments uh, jump in and take its place, but it's the centenary of the birth of one of your favorite science fiction and fantasy and crime writers, Avram Davidson. And so we finally get to this, and I uh, had not read a lot of Davidson, so I went and read some of his short stories and one of his novels, and as I read particularly the novel, I thought, oh, this is why Ken likes Bob Davidson. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like anyone who's read Suppressed Transmission and read Avram Davidson is like, oh, that's what he thinks he's doing. Right, or any fan of Tim Powers, of which you are perhaps yeah. the fan number one, mm -hmm. Avram Davidson is sort of the connective dot in the line that goes from uh, sort of late 19th and uh, early 20th century sort of classical-ish fantasy to Tim Powers. So if you want to connect up Maupassant to Tim Powers, uh, Avram Davidson is your your route. So Ken, tell us a bit about him. Yeah, Avram Davidson was born in Yonkers in, as you say, 100 years ago. He began writing basically fiction for Jewish magazines. He was an Orthodox Jew. And... He sort of fell into writing science fiction because that's what you did if you were a commercial writer in the 50s. He produced a bunch of novels, some of them better than others, but all of them pretty interesting, even the early sort of space-faring adventure type novels. Masters of the Maze in 1965, I think was his first really sort of super interesting novel. It's got a bunch of parallel worlds and very sort of human conspirators, and most importantly for me, lots of bits where the author sort of stops and talks for a time. <laughs> John Clute, who knows Avram Davidson is great, 
but I think doesn't like Avram Davidson's writing is maybe the best one line description of him. Sometimes obtrusive literacy, considerable wit and estranged sidling worldliness, which is almost, you know, you can't get better. That's why John Clute is the man. Right. So, so the novel that I picked up to do my homework on this is the Phoenix in the mirror, right? Uh, which is the first in his series with his protagonist, uh, Virgil Magus, which has a very Ken like, or Ken influencing, I suppose, premise of, uh, you know, th- there was a certain point where the poet Virgil was recast by uh, the historical imagination as a magician. And so this is the adventures of the fictional Virgil who has been transformed into an alchemist and a magician and is running around the classical world. And he gets an assignment and one that he doesn't really want and has to go and fulfill it. And that means going to a bunch of places and interacting with all of the elements of the setting. So it is in that case, you can certainly say that the, the plotting is designed to take you on a tour between Mm -hmm. all of these elements of his research. And uh, there are people who like that structure more than I do. And I guess you're one of them. Yeah. I mean, Phoenix in the mirror and you say the classical world, it's all the classical world as imagined by medieval scholarship. It's none of it. And, and medieval making things up a ship. It, right. It's not the so actual classical fantasy world. world. Right. Yeah. And that sort of combination of nonsense and rigor, I think, is for me one of the key points of Avram Davidson. I read the sort of short story that became that novel in Asimov Science Fiction magazine when I was a kid. I think my grandmother or one of my relatives had given me a subscription and it just kept showing up through basically until I went to college. I had this Asimov subscription and Davidson was publishing in Asimov's a lot in that time. And so I read uh, Phoenix in the mirror there and then found the book and read it. And of course, Davidson being Davidson, the thing that his publishers were screaming at him throughout the 1970s was finish your series, write another book. We can't just sell single, beautifully crafted lapidary prose novels, do a series so that people can get excited about you. And he never would. And so with uh, Virgil Magus, he's like, damn it, I'm going to spend the entire 1970s doing research another way. And perhaps he is like me and I'm going to do a sequel. And the sequel, of course, is a prequel. So you'll notice you may remember the Phoenix in the mirror does not so much end in a narrative sense. Certainly the character does not reach a satisfying conclusion. And so the next book in the series is a prequel. And then the next book of the series that came out, I think after his death was a prequel even to that. So he does a trilogy backwards when he does a trilogy. There was another of his trilogies that started in Asimov's. That's the Peregrine series, Peregrine Primus. And it's about a character who is uh, living in the middle Roman empire. We've heard of the East Roman empire. We've heard of the West Roman empire. This is the middle Roman empire. And this is Avram Davidson making fun of Christian gentle, beautiful scholarly fun. I should say of Christian heresies. So this is the era in which everyone is Christian, but no two people agree on what that means. And so Davidson has a great deal of fun with that. Plus lots of the late classical uh, learning that he loved to deploy. And so it's another sort of a questy fantasy novel. As uh, Clute says, it very relaxedly conveys its protagonist. (laughs) And, And that's one of the great things that I think people notice about Davidson is 
when you read him, it is as though Davidson has all the time in the world to tell you his story. So it's more like he's telling you a story in a bar than he's, you know, Hemingway style, you know, the man did this, the man did that, the fish, etc. That's not him. He is very much about the, the, you know, very Taoist, and he did eventually embrace Japanese new religion, Tenrikyo. But it's a very, the journey is the destination, people. Now, the short stories are from the same sensibility. Oh, yes. But, but quite different <laughs> in their approach. And that's why I mentioned uh, Mopassan, because I, he kind of uses that structure of almost sort of a vignette thing where there's basically an introduction a thing happens and then there's kind of a possibly ironic twist. So they're not long or densely plotted short stories, but they're very much in that older vein, mm -hmm. yet with the contemporary imagery and setting of 50s, 60s, and 70s science fiction. So his most famous one is Or All the Seas with Oysters, which is set in a bicycle repair shop. And it turns out that there's something peculiar about one of the bicycles mm -hmm. and the revelation such as it is, it's just sort of kind of slipped in there and, and not even, you know, there's sort of an elegant little unfolding and you're not even necessarily sure what has happened in that one, but they all kind of follow that structure. And so, you know, have that literary pedigree that and then a style that Beers worked in and Robert W. Chambers, uh, but it's really paired back structurally to the Mopassan. And uh, I believe that story won the Hugo as well. So it was, at the time, recognized. I think uh, over his lifetime, Davidson won three different World Fantasy Awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award. So everyone always loved Avram Davidson, except publishers who couldn't ever figure out what to do with him. And Davidson, in fairness, couldn't ever figure out how to convince publishers that good book was its own justification. Right. And he was also um, awarded in, in the mystery field as well. And yes. His yeah. mystery stories uh, have to have been sort of a standout in, you know, Ellery Queen or wherever they appeared because they were also, they're mostly just sort of historical vignettes where, again, something, there is a crime in them, but it's not anywhere near being, you know, Dashiell Hammett or something with you know, a long running detective or something. They're just by a, a hair crime stories. Most of them. Yeah. There's a, there's a collection of them that I think is still available in, you know, electronic ebook form called the investigations of Avram Davidson, which is all, not all, but it's a big chunk of his otherwise very difficult to find mystery and, and crime stories. Uh, and that it's, it's definitely worth reading, but I discovered that aspect of Davidson very late when I was doing a sort of, comprehensive hoovering up of everything Davidson had written to try and get more of that into my, into my veins. Um, the short stories that I think I fell in love with Davidson over is the Dr. Esterhazy stories. And there was a collection of them in 1975. He says they were eight stories that he just wrote in a row to basically live. <laughs> and so he wrote eight short stories. They all sold. They kept him in this the kind of terrible apartment building in uh, Mill Valley, California for a while. And Dr. Esterhazy is the court magician, scientist, theological arbiter, etc. He has a, a, a panoply of degrees to the King Emperor Ignatz Lewis, who is the, as we all know, the last perhaps emperor of the triune monarchy of Scythia Pannonia Transbalkania. And uh, it was, as Davidson remarks in one of the stories, the fourth largest empire in Europe. The Turks were fifth, serve them right. And 
So he's presented with these, as you say, exactly these sort of, there's a weird situation that crops up and Esterhazy involves himself in it and solves the problem somewhat or somehow generally in an oblique fashion after much, you know, chin stroking. Funnily enough, Davidson said that he needed to write them because he uh, was too busy doing research on Virgil Magus. So he didn't have any research books on anything that wasn't the classical era. So he says, what can I write? that just comes straight out of my head with no research. And when you read the Esterhazy stories, you say, oh, Davidson wrote that straight out of his head with no research. Again, you're beginning to get some indication of why I venerate him so much. Uh, The other thing that I ran across in Asimov's for the first time was he did these little essays called Adventures in Unhistory. And what they are is Avram Davidson looks at a mythical thing. So he has one on unicorns and one on dragons and one on Aleister Crowley and one on the Phoenix. And uh, I think who fired the Phoenix was the first one of them that I read. Again, it, it was just dumbfounding to me that you were allowed to write like that at that age. I had w- been reading like El Sprague de Camp essays and Willie Lay essays. And when Willie Lay is talking about Atlantis, he says, here are islands in the North Atlantic. Here's why it doesn't work. Atlantis, thank you, and you're out, and you you felt very, you know, world book encyclopedia about Atlantis, and here's Davidson just going all manner of different directions and sort of painting this wildly impressionistic vision of something, and often he does come up with a sort of a euhemeristic, naturalistic explanation, but in many cases he says, but the story is the most important part, you know, dragons are more important than lightning, or whatever it is you think makes dragons, that's why, you know, we, we care about them, and so... That is absolutely, you know, the raw material that I barely refined to to become suppressed transmissions, that sort of disquisitive wandering around a topic, inviting everyone to look at it with you. And, you know, eventually half half the time leaning back and saying, Prester John, huh, that's an idea. And that's your that's your essay. And those have been collected into a sporadically very difficult to find a collection of the adventures in on history. And if you ever want to, you know, call me on my, uh, on my nonsense, go ahead and get that. And you can say, well, now I'm much less impressed with you doing that, Ken, because you're just a, a substandard Avram Davidson, not a brilliant Ken. And, and wouldn't as be far wrong. as availability is concerned, like Jack Vance, Davidson's works have reverted to the estate mm-hmm. and therefore have all mostly uh, been, made available as ebooks that you can get on Amazon or uh, your favorite ebook purveyor uh, at uh, reasonable prices. Yeah, I think mostly is is still jumping the gun a bit. I actually have talked to his godson and stepson, Seth Davis, who is the host of the Avram Davidson Universe podcast, on which I will be guesting September 1st. And he is sort of doing a roll of them out, alternating kind of between popular titles and sort of rarities that only he has the access or the wherewithal to dig out. So he's just produced two enormous anthologies, 50 unpublished or barely published Davidson stories in each of them. AD 100 is the collective name for the whole series. And that, you know, was fallen on with glad cries by Davidsonians. I think that he's, you know, he told me he's planning to get the adventures re-released and Esterhazy re-released pretty soon but he's got a day job as a lawyer and he keeps saying, but it's so much more fun publishing my dad's stuff. And it's like, yes, I'll bet it is. <laughs> but I mean, you know better than I what, 
what uh, concentrating on on Avram Davidson's work and career did uh, for People's Bank Statement. So, yeah. But it's such a joy that he was able to sort of bring that beautiful, as you say, Maupassantian spirit of fiction and the, you don't have to go back to maybe, you know, uh, Robert Brown, right? The, the urn burial or Burton's melancholy to find another writer who talks around a topic without ever boring you and always leading you to the next uh, beautiful sunny upland the way that Davidson does. Well, speaking of not being boring and moving on to the next thing, let's do that, Ken. Let's go to the next thing. Let's do it. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English, that's Swedish, not English, you can delight in every original issue of Phoenix and the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Preserve the ultra-terrestrial bicycle that is this podcast by joining such erudite Patreon backers as Andy Shockney, Volpine, Mark Kenny. Derek Yates and Taylor Harless. Well, the time has come upon us, Robin. We've bought our tickets online. We've gone down to the old Cinema Hut, which is now, as I mentioned, the Cinema Hut Cineplex 12. And we are walking in. The uh, posters are now more abstract designs, or maybe there's like an outline of Indiana Jones's hat on the wall, something like that. People are trying to figure out what to do with cinema palaces in a world where everyone's got a 52-inch plasma TV. But what we're doing is we're sitting down in the center seat center aisle, waiting for the projector to start up, waiting for our popcorn to pop, because we're doing the science fiction cinema essentials series, and it's 2009, Robin. Yeah, I'm not sure we're quite at the... 52-inch plasma era yet, but we're definitely in what we feel to be the present day. We're in the big TV era, at least. All the ones that I saw, I saw in theaters that I still go to that are still Mm -hmm. present. Right. And so this brings up, again, the question of what is the prevailing theme? Uh, When we left off, we had entered a realm of identity and uh, also a little bit of trauma underneath that. And as we're reaching what feels like the present day, it's much harder to look and find trends because when you're in the present day, you don't have that perspective. The first movie is one that we is a have to mention, not a recommend. (laughs) And that is Avatar, James Cameron from uh, 2009, giant blockbuster, unequivocally a science fiction film, unequivocally a technical 
achievement or it's staggering. Actually, I made the mistake of seeing it in 3D on an IMAX size screen. And <laughs> that is when I discovered that because my uh, two eyes have are very different prescriptions, I have difficulty with telescopic vision. And I felt that my eyes were bleeding acid tears by the end of... <laughs> <laughs> sitting through this thing. And also many of the lines made me bleed acid tears. But yeah. normies love uh, Avatar, yet weirdly can nerds don't. Yeah, it's an odd choice. I and mean, obviously Cameron knows who he would rather get the money of because there's yes. more normies and good for him. But yeah, it's a dumb movie. It's a beautiful, dumb movie. But, you know, if you want beautiful, dumb things, that's literally what Instagram is for. Why are right. you? Why are you wasting your time hunting unobtainium? And thematically, though, it is very much part of this cycle of identity films because it's yeah. about literally projecting your mind into the constructed body of a member of a different species. And uh, and also, you've got a soldier of the corrupt order who rebels against it while we're on the topic of exactly, things that it yeah. is. So yeah. it's, you know, almost thuddingly in a bunch of different traditions, but we have to mention it. Yep. Next up is one that I'm very happy to mention. There's going to be some more kid Indian content in this episode later, but here's some now. This is Splice by Vincenzo Natale, also 2009. Sarah Polly and Adrian Brody are uh, conducting genetic experiments, and they wind up creating their own weird creature slash baby. And uh, Natale is he's definitely working the Cronenberg space here. Yep. He's a body horror guy. It's a body horror Frankenstein science horror movie and there's a bit of gender identity in it as well not that there wasn't in Cronenberg but it's yeah. uh, you know <laughs> a little more foregrounded in that uh, format and so I guess what we're starting to get to is is I'm looking at a string of really good well-made science fiction films they're well executed I'd highly recommend them and they're now clearly working within a bunch of different strains. And so it's less about innovation, but in this case, just about knocking it out of the park, I think, through execution. Yeah. And I think that is absolutely, if you're going to sum up our next film in one line, that would be a good line to do it. Uh, that film is Moon, directed by Duncan Jones, another 2009 movie. Sam Rockwell is an astronaut. He's assigned to a moon base. He's alone, except there's an AI with him that's his uh, sort of helper and, and buddy, voiced by Kevin Spacey. And it is basically, it is a sort of a post-Kubrick. I think that would be the box that I would put it in, in terms of it being about a, a you know human disintegration when con confronted with something larger. Sam Rockwell, talking about knocking out of the park, does an amazing job acting in it. The story is almost without technical flaws. It's beautiful and cold in that Kubrick way. Uh, it's just a, a absolutely great example of a movie in that tradition. I, I don't know, as you say, that it, you know, innovates, you know, cuts any new ground, but it's an amazing, you know, human being versus outer space movie of the sort that in a way goes back to, you know, woman in the moon, right? Yeah. In its isolation of the main character, it also harkens back to silent running. Mm -hmm. uh, the AI uh, also sort of, and then the look graphically calls on that as well. And in order to also say, and this is also a story of fractured identity that very much fits in the 2000 science fiction theme. I can't explain anything more without nope. giving you a giant spoiler. And I yeah. think this is one of those ones that not everybody has seen. So you should go and see it. Yeah, you should. Next, we come to District 9 by Neil Blomkamp, also from 09. And so I guess we're seeing, once again, the density of essentials 
has uh, picked up again after just a slight bit of a lull of the previous uh, decade. This has that classic science fiction formula of taking a present-day social problem and putting a science fiction imagery on top of it in order to make it accessible and uh, have people come and sit down in theaters. Also, it's a pretty solid browsing action thriller once it gets going. And it uh, stars Shalto Copley as, guess what, an agent of the oppressive system who receives the DNA of the uh, the visitors, the, the uh, refugee aliens who have uh, been given an encampment in Johannesburg. And of course, nobody likes these new arrivals. Nobody wants them there. They just want to go home, but they might have some useful weapons. And so there's sharp commentary that uh, doesn't get in the way of the uh, action thrills. Yeah, and once you realize the film was made in and partially produced by South Africa, you maybe figure out which social problem it is pointing its finger at most. But again, it's pretty obvious uh, when you watch it. And as you say, it is a amazingly good action film after you sort of set up the situation. It, you know, it easily stands up there with Cameron at his best. And it's another example, as you say, of a film just sort of playing into that tradition. There have been, I, I think, worse films of the sort of alien and human as racial proxies. But this is, you know, I don't know if it's the best one of those, but it's one of the best one of those. And it's also... Yeah, and, and I think because it is a refugee story as well, that it's yeah. not there is enough of an angle there that it seems less thuddingly obvious. Yeah. I mean, it's still pretty obvious, but the thudding is mostly the, uh, your heart during the uh, action sequences. Cause Blomkamp is terrific. Speaking of thudding of your heart during the action sequences and terrificness, turn the page to 2010 and Christopher Nolan's inception, which is as I guess everyone listening to this has to know by now, a movie about going into people's dreams to change their mind. And so it is, once more, you know, a turn to 11, the problem of reality and identity interspersed with just high wire, not physics, but barely science, frankly, but high wire sort of speculation and just masterful control of tension and timing. But I said uh, Christopher Nolan right at the top, didn't I? Right. It's a Borgesian thriller mm -hmm. because you're not just going into one dream, you're going to layers and layers of dream and you, of course... Uh, because it's a, a reality dreamscape. You never know exactly whether you are or aren't in the dream, but the way all of the different crazy sequences uh, with the, a brilliant innovative use of CGI come into play. And it's just, as is typical for Nolan, the cast is incredibly deep. So you mm -hmm. have not only uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Elliot Page, you've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Marion Cotillard, Tom Hardy. That's not even the whole list. But uh, <laughs> you need everybody to be that great and that recognizable and that grounded because there's no stopping to explain or have people tell you their backstories or have, you know, uh, character moments outside of the context of this bizarre dreamscape uh, heist film. But it, it's both thrilling and uh, uh, mind-bending. The next one I want to talk about I think is actually innovative, is an example of taking science fiction and really turning on its head. And this is Extraterrestrial from Spain from uh, 2011 by Nacho Vigalondo. Basically, it's the alien invasion with classic invading saucers. So it's like, you know, flying saucers versus Earth style invasion, except it's all from the point of view of three people 
stuck in an apartment together. It's the guy who's had uh, what he thought was a one night stand and the woman and oh, also her boyfriend has shown up and they're locked down in the apartment because the aliens are invading and the giant flying saucers are overhead. And so it's a brilliant comedy that sort of takes the scale of these movies and turns them completely on their head in a way that requires you to be literate in the tropes of science fiction and then delivers something completely unexpected. So uh, like a good version of Cloverfield, basically. Yes, except it's, it, Cloverfield is still, they're running away from the monsters. And mm-hmm. here it's just sort of, you're trying to live your life while yeah. the invasion is going. And it's still it's all like, about... So it's like the, act one of Cloverfield before they start running. Right. It, yeah. and, and you said, but good. Yeah. But good. Oh, I said that because I've not seen this film, but I have seen, speaking of mastering a science fiction trope, a film that I don't think that I would even consider an essential. But if we're mentioning Nacho Viglando, let me plug Time Crimes, one of the best combination time travel movies and movies that are peons to married love. And I will leave it at that, but it is well worth hunting down if you can find it. It was what turned me on to Vigilando, and I don't know how I missed Extraterrestrial, but I will dial that up pretty soon, I imagine. And to finish off, I think one that I like better than you do, it's Looper by Ryan Johnson. That's from uh, 2012. And it's yet another time travel as a vehicle for identity disjunction. Mm -hmm. In this case, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a time-traveling hitman who is hired to kill someone who's his later self, uh, played by Bruce Willis. It has Emily Blunt in it as well, delivering a, another strong performance. It, when you're around Emily Blunt, check to see whether you're in some sort of time loop. As yeah, I that's basically, that. I, that's frankly good advice, I would yeah. say. Yeah. And so I think this has the control and, and mastery and invention uh, that we expect from Ryan Johnson in what I thought was a pretty solid thriller hitman time travel movie. We've got lots of time travel fusions, both uh, that we've talked about are coming up. And I thought hitman movies thumbs up time travel movies thumbs up and i thought this did a good job of combining i enjoyed it when i watched it i agree with everything you said but when you put it on the list i said oh yeah looper and then i had a remarkable amount of trouble thinking of anything about looper that i remembered except joseph gordon levitt was in it so that to me implies it was not essential it was enjoyable i will happily mention it and when i went and you know read the wikipedia entry i said oh yeah looper i remember that but I don't think it left a big enough stamp on me. It's it's clever and facile in the best ways that Ryan Johnson's work is when it is. Gordon Levitt and Willis do a great two-hander, but a lot of the things in it just, you know, slid off me like spaghetti. And that's just the way it is. So, you know, fine, but I would say you'll catch it in a future life. Right. Well, speaking of things uh, sliding off you like spaghetti, we're going to slough off this segment like gnocchi and head on into our concluding segment of this podcast. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... 
in Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to spend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, thanks to beloved Patreon backer Laurel Halbani, we have some CanCon, and even a CanCon story, it's this deep cut, I was unaware of the, uh, the premise of this one. So, in the 1980s, what disaster, Laurel asked, did Ken prevent by intercepting the master dies for the new Canadian dollar coin on their way to the mint? thereby ensuring the switch to the loony design we all know and love and what went wrong with the veil out. So if you uh, have not seen a loony, next time you're able to do a Google image search, you can bring one up. It's sort of a, a gold color coin, which, which of course has a loon on it, the uh, beloved lake bird with the haunting call and uh, a can. I think you're going to explain why it's part of our reality, and I guess also its brother, the, the Toonie, which has a polar bear on it, mm -hmm. where they came from when there was going to be something less beloved and uh, sort of boring. Well, less beloved and sort of boring. I mean, if you're looking for a Canadian coin, what the heck? But oh, I would say... that one. <laughs> you really did. We begin uh, our story in March of 1986, when... Canada's mint, as national mints everywhere do, was whining and kvetching that dollar bills were too expensive. Your, your average dollar bill lasts about 18 months. If that uh, it falls apart, then you have to print more and replace it. They hates them. They hates them. They hates them. Mints around the world would love if you switched dollar bills out for dollar coins because a dollar coin lasts 20 years instead of 18 months, so you save money on every dollar that you mint. That's just good, sensible business. So they finally bullied the Canadian government into announcing that they were phasing out the Canadian dollar bill, which, note to mints everywhere, is the only way it works, to be replaced with a dollar coin. And everyone grumbled, I assume, but they moved on with their lives because Canada. The plan was to just reissue the Voyageur dollar. And this was the Canadian dollar coin that began in 1935. They minted it in larger or smaller numbers down to 1986. It shows a uh, Native American and a uh, fur-trapping voyageur in a canoe, and they're sailing past what looked like, Robin, the saddest trees in the universe. Just gloppy, weird, terrible trees. So one hopes that the plan was spruce up, haha, the trees, and let's move on with the Voyager dollar. So they, they come up with their new Voyager dollar, they struck the dies in Ottawa, and then they vanished. They went away. They disappeared. The, the dies did. The dies did, yes. No, not the mint. The mint is still there. Yes, not the people delivering them. Right. So the, the dies were supposed to be delivered to the actual mint where they make the coins in Winnipeg on uh, November 3rd, 1986, and they just weren't there. So 
they didn't they didn't turn up for 11 days at which point someone says we should call the mounties <laughs> this is the most canadian part of the story which is right. it all completely turns on someone cheaping out on the shipping <laughs> right yeah so what happened was they went back and they said well where's the armored car receipt let's you know get all this uh, going and they said oh we didn't send it by armored car we sent it by a local courier service a regular parcel service because we saved $43 and 50 cents. That's, that's nearly 44 loonies. That's nearly, nearly 44 loonies or almost $40. And to compound their felony, they had sent both the obverse and the reverse of the coin dies in the same package. And, uh, someone said, well, that's, even worse. <laughs> so then they began with the story and the Mounties sort of looked into it and they said, well, it was probably lost in the snowstorm, which again, talk about your perfect. Right, so who's, who's actually responsible for shipping? Was it the people who had like a, a contract or something? People who had made the dyes? It was the people who made the dyes, but the people who made the dyes under the supervision of the mint. I don't know if right. the, if the dye office in Canada was the actual mint, but it, the, the mint did an internal investigation, which makes me think it was, if not a, an employee, at least the kind of contractor they can go in and bully. So the, the Mounties said, Oh, it was probably lost in a snowstorm. And also it was <laughs> that, an 11 day standard cold trail RCMP answer for anything. Right, for everything. Get yes. off the desk for it. Right. Uh, the Mint's own investigation theorized that the dyes were stolen but couldn't figure out who because no one signed for the parcel. <laughs> they just showed up, showed no identification, were given the parcel and drove yeah. away with it. Well, we're going to find out who stole them. Well, we are. They did describe him as strikingly handsome. And underdressed for and the winter. Underdressed winter. for the weather. Well, Hawaiian shirts are all weather garb. You know this, Robin. Anyway, so the Mint, worrying about people counterfeiting the new Canadian dollar coin, and let's just stop to note that counterfeiting a dollar coin may be the dumbest thing you can possibly do. I guess counterfeiting a dime would be dumber, but there we are. They feared counterfeiting, so they redesigned the coins, and they're going through all their old designs. And uh, someone said, what about this one with a bird on it? That was previously rejected. A guy named Robert Ralph Carmichael had sent in his design for a putative $100 gold commemorative coin. The Mint never made any $100 gold commemorative coin. And they said, well, we don't want to make a coin with a bird on it. Thank you. This is from like 1978. And he was a, a well-known uh, wildlife artist. He, he was, I think, well-known in his circles, but became gigantically known once they put his loon on the coin. But they liked it. They said, well, why not? <laughs> no one around uh, said that's a weird thing to put on your coin. So off you go. And the loony is released June 30th, 1987. It's only six months after they were supposed to release their proper dollar coin. And so everyone in Canada said, huh. We've got that on our money, but eventually... Well, it's it's not actually such a weird thing to put on a Canadian coin. The loon is sort of the... It's certainly a better bird than the Canada goose, first of all. Loons are <laughs> well, much better birds. Mm -hmm. Geese are the worst. But it sort of symbolizes the solitude of the wilderness, and it sort of fits into, uh, you know, Canadian mythology. The, the, the cry of the loon was sort of a staple sound effect that you would hear in little PSA spots about different Canadian animals that ran a lot on uh, Canadian television. So it's not utterly out of left field. And in fact, people very quickly learned to love yeah. the loon. The Canadians embraced their weird nonsense coin, as they so often do. People had a pre-existing 
fondness for for the loon and we're very happy to call the coin a loony and mm-hmm. people have a lot of as laurel says a lot of affection for this coin. yes no they, they it it began with sort of i think there was some questions asked but yes canada took the loon to its uh, generous heart certainly and- canadians are ready to much faster to accept changes in their money than americans i mean well, you, you guys still have pennies they, well, exactly because they have abraham lincoln on them not some bird anyhow it turns out this was not the first time the Mint had lost stuff. They had the Master Dies for a Constitution Act's commemorative dollar. Those just fell out of a truck between Hull and Ottawa in 1982. I love that. Right. And then, for some reason, they were making transit token dies in America. They shipped them to America, and they lost them there. We might have lost wonder, them, in fairness. Do you know what transit service that was? I assume that it was one of the big cities, but was I don't know. TTC, maybe? Toronto? TTC. I, I could not find any more data. This is just from one Ottawa Citizen article. So, right. there we are. So, the token sounds like just yet another shipping screw-up. But mm-hmm. I also think that maybe coin collectors yeah. uh, might be a market for this sort of thing. Could be. Could be. Certainly, that's if you find the dies of the original Voyager 1986 coin, you will definitely be able to sell them to a collector, I feel. Although, I'm going to assume they're already in the hands of a private collector. I, I believe so. Someone who's got there. Because their... you sold them to him, Ken, because you're the one, presumably, who did this, right? Well, Time traveler? Well, I can say that they're in the hands of a collector. Right. I will not confirm or deny that anyone sold anyone anything. That said... This was, as I say, the third time that the Canadian Mint had lost something. So finally, the Canadian Mint put down what we like to call written policies about shipping coin dies. And that seems to have prevented coin dies from ganging aglay as they had been in the habit of doing throughout the 80s. This was important to me because previously the 2019 silver hundred dollar and it's called a coin, but it's actually a plaque coin commemorating the Shag Harbor UFO incident minted by the Canadian Mint went missing and then was miraculously restored in uh, 2019. Yeah. Speaking of collectors, there's a certain point at which the Canadian Mint wises up to the size of the collector market and starts making a bunch of collectible coins that never enter circulation. No, just, yeah, these are uh, just sold. The Shag Harbor coin was had 4,000 copies minted. It, it's sold out. You can't buy it from the mint now. You have to buy it from, you know, a collector. It, that is the second of their four Unknown Phenomena series coins. There's a number of Canadian UFOs that have made it on, but the Shag Harbor one is the one that went missing, and the saucer on the coin has a number of weird little glyphs around the side of it, and those weird little glyphs started turning up in some pretty shady corners of the Canadian internet in the 2020s in the other timeline. And I thought, let's just clamp down and see if that Shag Harbor coin can be shipped without going missing. Maybe we won't have that weird mimetic whatever it is. And uh, I don't know what's going on yet. This is a work in progress, which is why I can't confirm or deny that these dies have been sold to a collector, but something is going on with the Canadian mint. And basically this was a hail Mary to get them to tighten up and have even moderate security for anything. There was an interesting side effect, Robin, you'll be glad to know as a result of my change, Canada won the Olympic hockey in 2002, the Americans won three to two in the original timeline. But in this timeline, now the Canadians won five to two because 
the Canadian guy who was putting the ice together for the Salt Lake City Olympics dropped a loony at center ice and it uh, was froze over and it because they didn't have a, a place for the puck to get tipped off from. So they just used a loony to, to mark the spot. And uh, then Canada won. And uh, Wayne Gretzky the magical resonance affirmed that this was, in fact, the lucky loony that had done that. So. Something's going on with these uh, Canadian coins, Robin, and I will get to the bottom of it, but I am in the middle of the process. This is a, a work in progress, and frankly, if Laurel Halbany's interference, well-meaning though it may be, has allowed weird-time UFO memeticists to do stuff, well, I won't like it. Now, long-time listeners will surely upbraid us, perhaps even uh, remonstrate with us, if we do not try to tie in the loon to the magic beaver. Right, So yes. the question of why does Canada gain more mystical power, uh, not just to win the hockey games, but you know, also to, you know, continue our way of life and our high rankings and, you know, the best cities to live in and so forth. And that, of course, is brings us to the mythic role of the loon. Now, of course, as you try to uncover mythic relationships uh, that involve the cultures of various First Nations, you run into the usual problems of, you know, what is reliable, who, who told the actual stories to anthropologists, what stories were altered by contact and who just, you know, in previous generations just made stuff up and said that it was indigenous. So, but the loon does consistently across a number of of First Nations cultures does have the earth diver uh, myth attached to it. So after Mm -hmm. the flood or sometimes in the uh, act of creation, it is the loon who is the one who's uh, brave enough to dive down deep because, of course, that's what loons do. They, they're, they're lake divers and find the mud at the bottom of the lake and bring it up in order to have an island, a turtle island, sometimes it's called. Right. And, and, and since that myth is also found in Siberia, I think it's a pretty strong contender for it being at least a real First Nations myth in some form, even if the actual, you know, biblical correspondences are uh, the creation of pious 19th century interlocutors. Yeah. So that one's sufficiently widespread across different cultures. And also, as you say, in Siberia, that that is almost certainly uh, right. And it makes sense if you watch the behavior of a loon. And there are later versions that, like you say, that are Christianized, where the it's after the flood and the, the loon brings a willow branch uh, instead of an olive branch. That's obviously, you know, two things being stapled together there. But there's also, I heard people asking about the magic beaver. So in a story who's, that's credited to an actual First Nations person, a Micmac elder named uh, Margaret Labalas. So she's telling a traditional story. I absolutely believe her. The loon is the uh, messenger of what in the Micmac called Coloscap. You may have heard it from other traditions that uh, Glooscap is sort of the kind of between a culture hero and a, and a benevolent god who comes down and helps people. In this story, the original beavers are bad news. They're, yeah. first of all, they're gigantic. They're, I'm going to say, kaiju sized. And they are doing so much damning up of things that the salmon can no longer spawn. And the, this puts the people in distress. And so they contact the loon. The loon acts as messenger, goes and gets Coloscap, and Coloscap comes and sorts out the beavers. He uh, touches them. He takes the meanest, uh, nastiest of the beavers and turns him, first of all, into a mountain, into Sugarloaf Mountain. And just to make sure that these bad vibes get far enough away, he sticks Sugarloaf Mountain in Maine and puts it in America, where people with bad attitudes are meant to live. And that leaves the other beavers to be shrunk down to size 
and to become, you know, the, the help meets of mankind, like, like other animals. And presumably the first of these uh, beavers that gets a uh, pet down to size rather than turned into a mountain and hauled to Maine would be the magic beaver, who of course right. we've feature on a t-shirt and have talked about many times before in the, in the podcast previously. Well, if, if, if he has been, you know, personally selected by Gluskop as the exemplar of his species, well, obviously he would be magic. I yeah. mean, that's just how that works. And I am glad that uh, we got the uh, beaver with a proper tood. I'm, I'm happy to know about that. <laughs> I think that maybe there may be a connection. I'm not going to be all diffusionist about it, but I feel like there is also a giant evil beaver that uh, lived in Wales called the Afonk. And so maybe giant evil beavers had their own situation going on. And uh, we all have Gluskop to think that they're in Maine now instead of tearing the heck out of Wales. Yes. Well, they're tested in the fossil record. So yeah, right. <laughs> it is, isn't actually uh, weird that multiple cultures would be afraid of overly large tree chewing rodents. Mm-hmm. And once we have mentioned over the large tree chewing rodents, as always, as always, it's time for us to sign off. But we'll be back a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Polygrain Press, Astvagelm, Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at Patreon.com/backslash Ken and Robin. Kick in a loony or five to keep this podcast going as have such fine feathered backers as Jamie Twine Steve Sigety Tristan Knight Joe Webb and Aryan Poutsma wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin present the gray alien point of view with our latest design nope still not us on X he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.